Hey everybody, welcome to a bonus episode on the Live No Lies podcast. As you listen to this, I am not here. This is a pre-recorded message. I am away on my sabbatical, but before I left town, I sat down and hit record with a new friend of mine, Roberta Amundsen. She is a very hard woman to introduce. She is the definition of an iconoclast. She is just hard to pin down, kind of category defining. She was a longtime journalist who became an expert of sorts in church history. She's recorded our conversation that you're about to listen in on in her personal library of 20,000 books, all of which she has read. Today, she and her husband are Christian philanthropists and patrons of the arts. We met about a year ago at an event together where we were both speaking and we just started nerding out together on church history. And a, a big passion of mine is how ahistorical much of Western culture is and the Western church is. And so recapturing our ancient heritage in the way of Jesus is a passion of mine that we share. And so we just started nerding out and I thought we need to do this with a microphone nearby for the other nerds in the room. I don't know how many of you that is who find this kind of stuff fascinating. So my hope is that this conversation and this interview does something to ignite in your heart a desire to learn more about church history, to realize that a lot of the problems we are facing are not new. They're ancient. They're human. We've been here before, and we can face the future full of wisdom from the past and hope for what God is about to do. With all that said, here's my conversation with Roberta. Roberta, what a joy to have you on the Live No Lies podcast. Thank you so much. It's just a delight. I wish we were in the same room together. Are you in Southern California? Where are you right now? Yes. Right now I'm in our library. Behind the messy desk. This is the the legendary library of record. How many books are in the library? Upwards of 20,000. Oh my goodness. Come on. That that's my kind of library. So, okay. So we don't know each other very well. Uh, we, I was introduced to you, uh, through Q, we were speaking at an event together and I thought, who is this woman and how do I become friends with her? Because I just want to talk to her for hours and hours and hours. And one of the reasons is because you are uh, an expert. You have 20,000 books around you right now. You're an expert <laughs> in an all expert sorts of things. in collecting books. In- <laughs> oh. yes. and, but you're an expert in church history. And that is so rare. I'm reading right now. I'm not quite done with it, but The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which I'm, I, in my opinion, feels, I'm not done with it yet, but feels like maybe one of the most significant Christian books written in years. And he writes a lot about how a key facet of Western culture is what he calls anti-history or it's anti-historical or ahistorical. And, you know, part of that is kind of the myth of progress. Part of it is Karl Marx's influence and his kind of interpretation of human history as just power struggle between oppressed and oppressor. So there's a there's a Western bias toward the future and against the past. And so unlike other cultures and generations, even in Western culture, that would think about the past as this rich kind of deposit of wisdom and the cumulative insight of thousands of years of human civilization, Christian or Greek or Eastern or Western, that we look to to not repeat the mistakes of the past. 
Uh, now we have a bias in the opposite. Now the past is just a story of oppressed and oppressor, and we've moved on from it. And all of the good stuff's in the future, which is why we're really one of the first generations where, you know, at a popular level, whether it's the New York Times or whatever, we'll interview not elderly people to glean their wisdom, but young people. We have 15-year-old, you know, Swedish people writing op-eds for the New York Times because it's all like the, the future is where the good stuff is, not the past. So this is very much kind of the Western worldview. And I just keep thinking of, uh, help me with uh, the historian, George, whoever, who said those who don't know the, his, the past history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, George, San, I want to say Santana. 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 It was Santana. Oh, it is Santana, like the band? It was Santana or Ortega E. Gasset. It was one of those two. Somebody, some I smart think. person once yes. said, yes. those who don't know the, the history are doomed, are doomed to repeat it. To repeat it. So when we, uh, when we were introduced to each other, you were literally holding in your lap this old copy of the city of God by St. Augustine. It was dog eared. It had like bright, you know, colored stickies all over it, notes all in it. And uh, you're searching around your library right now for those of you listening to the audio and not watching the video, but uh, there you are. There it is. It's right there. And there it is. So if you're watching, you can see this man. And you were saying uh, that we, I mean, my interpretation of what kind of your, your take was, was that we're living in a very similar time to St. Augustine, to the city of God, to the decline and fall of the Roman empire, if you want to call it that. So talk to us about that. I'm done. Now on to you. <laughs> talk to us about the cultural moment behind uh, St. Augustine, city of God. In what ways is that cultural moment similar to our own? Well, Augustine was born in um, in North Africa in, in either 354 or 356. I always get that confused. And he became a Christian. Uh, in fact, I'm rereading his book, The Confessions, which is something I think every Christian should read. There's a yeah. new translation done by, it's an Augustine project called The New City something or other. And um, and they're, they call them translations for our time. And I'm reading it and it's, I read it and I think, when did this guy write this? I mean, he's writing this in like, I don't know, 386 or something. And he's about 30 years old or a little older. It was a little after he became, a, he didn't become a Christian until he was 30. And he'd gone through every philosophy that was floating around. And there were quite a few. Um, Manichaeism, which is a kind of dualism, a Gnostic dualism, uh, attracted him for a while, but then he found out that they were kind of all puffheads. Um, you know, when he met the great guru of it, the guy didn't really know what he was talking about, and that kind of put Augustine off. So he didn't know what to do, and he was he's living in the Roman Empire. The Roman Rome itself has not been attacked for 800 years. But in 410, a guy comes through named Alaric and he attacks and sacks the city of Rome. I mean, it's like 9-11, only, only they really upset the place. You know, they came in, they burned things, trashed things, killed people, raped women. You know, it was, mad. It was horrible. And a lot, one of the things Augustine had to do was explain to these women who'd been raped that they were okay because they belonged to Jesus and what had been done to them was not who they were. Go forward. It's not, there's no shame on you, which in the Roman world, let me tell you, there was shame on you. 
And, and so, so then he, he's thinking about all this. And Christians had seen themselves, you know, for 100 years by then as very much connected to the great Roman Empire. So he writes a book. It's called The City of God to explain to people, to Christian people, we are citizens of where we live, and it matters that we be good citizens, but there's a whole other city. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are dual citizens, citizens of this earth and citizens of the city of God. There's this great quote from this book, and when I read it, just think, the guy's writing this somewhere between 410 and 420. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly love of self. Now, we don't know anything about that, right? Even to the contempt of God, not something the 21st century has a clue about. Okay. <laughs> We've evolved past that. Yeah, we're beyond. Okay. The, and then the other is, the other love is the heavenly love of God, even to contempt of the self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. But as the earthly city, being deceived, he says, either by their own conjectures or by demons, suppose that many gods must be invited to take interest in human affairs. And I was talking to somebody just this weekend about how we tell what we worship, what our many gods are, what are the biggest buildings in any city? Stadiums, art museums, banks. What do we worship? What are our many gods? Okay, that we've invited to take interest. And as the celestial city, on the other hand, knew that one God only was to be worshiped. It has come to pass that the two cities could not have common laws of religion and that the heavenly city has been compelled in this matter to dissent and to become obnoxious to those who think differently and to stand the brunt of their anger and hatred and persecutions. This heavenly city then, while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens of all nations, I may cry just reading this, and gathers together a society of pilgrims of all languages. Beautiful. It gives me shivers. Yeah. This, this African Berber, educated in Roman rhetoric at the top of the line, the Harvard of, you know, the Harvard of ancient Roman society. I mean, he was called to the, the capital to teach rhetoric to the people around the, um, the palace, the people around the emperor. That's, the level of erudition that that he had, and he 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 certainly knew the world at its highest, yeah. and at the same time he he was a humble man, but also a a very wise one with incredible insight. And he wrote that then, and it's as true that now as it was then. Yeah, reading City of God after our time together last year. I was just struck by how blisteringly intelligent he was, how yeah. well-written it was, how like concise and irrefutable his like logical arguments are. 
and how different and how similar the world that he was living in was yeah. at the same time to the one that I'm that I call home. And you know, again, because there's such a bias toward the future and against the past in Western yeah. culture, we're yeah. almost shocked that somebody writing yeah. in you know the early 400s could be smarter than what we're used to, yeah. you know. Yeah and have a more penetrating insight into the human condition. And of course, he's not dealing with the iPhone or social media or modern Western democracy, but no. he's dealing with the human soul and with society as a whole, you know? So let me, let me try an interpretation of Augustine's time on you, and then you correct or confirm it. And you don't need to be nice. Like just okay. we're, we're in pursuit of truth here, not uh, affirmation. Okay. But here's my interpretation. He's living at a time where he's kind of the first or one of the first generations born into a Roman empire where it's legal to follow Jesus. Yeah. And the, the way of Jesus or what's coming to be called by then Christianity, there's been a shift under Constantine from kind of a persecuted minority to a political majority. And that's a tectonic shift in the story of the church, where for 300-ish years, they're living under a state-sponsored, systemic, brutal genocide of Christians, to yep. now you have an emperor who claims to be Christian. I'm very, mm. very skeptical of that. But for sure, Roman elites who are, are now in power and who are at some level Christians. And so this is a tectonic shift. And the result is, here's my interpretation, Outside of the church, it's a time of kind of decline and disarray in kind of the Greco-Roman Empire, which is, takes place, as I understand, over hundreds of years. Yeah. And inside of the church, yeah. there's this widespread kind of compromise and complicity with the world, with the empire, as people try to figure out how to be Christian in an empire. Mm -hmm. Take that interpretation, poke holes in it. Well, it's partly true. Okay. I've read, I don't know maybe a couple dozen books, maybe just about that period. In the ancient world, there at, at this time, there was there has been in academic circles a, con, a, a, a controversy really over whether or not um, when Theodosius in 382 closed all the temples, okay, that he, I mean, there's a book written, The Closing of the Western Mind. Um, by a guy named Freeman. And um, I read that. And then I read um, the late Alan Cameron's book, The Last Pagans of Rome, in which he has Freeman for lunch. And it's a, it's a book. It's like this thick. There's 200 pages of argument, 400 pages of going text by text, which is a little tedious. And then there's 200 pages of footnotes in this thing. What's the basic case of his book? And tell us who Theodosius was for those. Theodosius was the became emperor in 382. He was a very serious Christian from Spain. And he is the one who issued the edict that closed all the pagan temples. Got it. And the point of Alan Cameron is that everybody was Christian anyway, except a very few academics. And, um, and he, he goes through all the texts to show that by that time, the academy was largely a Christian redoubt. And they knew, the, these Christians knew the classical philosophers and all of that. They knew their Cicero and they knew their Seneca and they knew their everybody. They knew their Homer. At the same time, they, and they knew their Plato, um, and, but they were Christians. And so the major 
the culture had become intellectually Christian because mm-hmm. they had outthought and outwritten everybody else. Hmm. And um, and so there were pagans and they they weren't ostracized. The last pagan scholar was removed from the equivalent of the university in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, in 529. There were still pagans around, but the dominant, you know, it's like today the dominant thought is, is materialist um, philosophy. Yes. Well, the dominant thought was Christian in the academy at the time. So that change had happened between 300 and 400. And, and, and Augustine very much lived in an intellectual community that had non-Christians, the Manichees and others, and he writes about it in the Confessions. It's very wonderful to see him grappling with the philosophies of his time that were still around, and this is in the 370s. Um, But at the same time, there are Christian lights that are strong too. Okay, let me just, let me sidebar you here. I'm going to bring you back to our narrative here, to Augustine. Okay. How do you think we've lost that? Because I think very few people would say that's true of oh. the church in America oh. today. Like any any just sidebar tangent oh. rabbit tra- I will bring you back, I promise. But any just thoughts on how we've we've lost that? You know, you have to go back to the in the West. You go back to the Protestant Reformation and and the wars of religion. And I don't think we can uh overemphasize how important the devastation of those wars were, was. The wars were and the devastation was uh, because it was Christians killing Christians over doctrine. And it was called the deluge in Germany. It killed so many people. So it was horrible. So the minds, you know, and out of that come the enlightenment minds who say, I don't know, but if this Christianity is true and this is how it works out, it's not looking so good to me. And frankly, I think we need to find something else because this isn't working. And so they become atheists and you get the French version and the German version and and the church. The American version. Yeah, the American version comes along about 150 years and... And pretty soon you've got, you know, Harvard was only an Orthodox Christian institution for a generation. It, it, it went off into um, what transcendentalism and other forms, Unitarianism very quickly um, right. early in the 18th century. So, so the version is the church withdraws either into, into pietism or it, intellectualizes and eventually you get what came to be called modernism. But so they were looking for a way And in, in Germany, what started the research university was education was either controlled by the church or by the state. And, um, and the state education was very militaristic, especially in Prussia. And that came to pervade German education. So they, the enlightenment folks said, we got to do something here. Because we don't want people indoctrinated in the state, and we don't want them indoctrinated in the church. And the research university is a German idea that grew out of that. And the Christians didn't step up to the map very well 
today, they didn't step up to the mat very well that there were the wars of religion in the first place. So we'll just right. put that out there. Secondly, they didn't stand up to the mat very well when all this change started happening. There was an intellectual withdrawal, if you will. And so, so by the time you get to now, um, in the American university in the 19th century was deeply influenced by the German university. A lot of the people who were right. leading American scholars studied in Germany and came over and then became the heads of institutions. Yep. Here. So that happens. Then you get to the believing church. And in America, we have the phenomenon that nowhere else in the world exists, which is the fundamentalist modernist split, which was an intellectual argument. Very much so. If you look at who um, Lyman Stewart got to write the books, The Fundamentals, where the mm -hmm. name comes from, they all have Oxbridge or Harvard, Yale degrees. And Yale, Yale and Princeton still had a deeply Christian element up until the beginning of the 20th century. And so we lost the pietist church withdrew completely from the academy. So when you look at in the 20th century, who are the believing Christians who have any clout at the table of the world? They tend to be European and Catholic or Anglican. Not mm. C.S. Lewis was an Anglo-Catholic. Yeah. Um, uh, T.S. Eliot, you know, was Harvard trained, but then he went to England and lived his life in England. Right. So he's both an English and an American poet. Um, Jacques Maritain is a French Catholic. Um, and when you, if, if there's that great book that Alan Jacobs wrote, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, which made me weep um, because he looks at six intellectuals um, who were kind of the last serious Christians to be taken seriously. I mean, hmm. C.S. Lewis was on the cover of Time magazine um, as a scholar and a Christian. But you're saying none of them were American because of the unique, unless if you count T.S. Eliot, because of the unique American kind of tragic history of the fundamentalist modernist split that because happened decades before that. No American believing Christian got educated at the level to play that game. Yeah. I'll just put it out there. Do you see a way forward? You know, I mean, just reading some of the, what we now call the apologists from the second and third century, you know, and Augustine is kind of in that tradition. I am just shattered by their level of genius, you know, and their understanding, not just of scripture, but their understanding of the pagan philosophies of the day from stoicism to Gnosticism to all the things. And I'm just thinking, man, where are these people today? You know, and the need is just, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple I could name, but man, not at that level, you know, the best why, why is Tim Keller not the norm? Why is he the exception to the rule? Not the rule, you know? And the other, I mean, you know, I just listened to a podcast uh, with, uh, you know, Bishop Robert Barron. I don't. Okay. You need to know who he is. He has a thing called Word on Fire. He is, you know, he has a doctorate from Rome in the classics. Like but, he also, but he also has a, 
I don't want to call it down home, but close to that style. Um, he also he started in Chicago as a young priest, um, mentored by Cardinal George, who was a great man of God, uh, who saw the talent in this young man and really helped him. Um, he started out reviewing movies. Hmm. And so he knows movies and, uh, you know, it's a good American. And but yet he knows movies with a doctorate in philosophy from Rome. I think I, if it's from the Augustinianum or there's a couple of universities around the Vatican, so I'm not sure which one. So he can also parse Latin verbs for you if you really need that. Um, but he does it in a way that's very engaging. But what I'm saying is it's only Catholics who have thought that that level of education mattered that I know mm. of. Wow. The evangelical colleges were started, most of them, as Bible institutes, which is fine. But as C.S. Lewis said, you know, I just reread it again about why they needed him and why and why his doing of culture wasn't a bad thing. It was frankly that without, he, as he put it, you know, he and people like him were the only defense the rest of the Christians had against the academy. Hmm. Because they had to have the tools, they had to know how yeah. to play the game. Do you and, do you see a way made at that intellectual white heart? Yeah, and we haven't been there. Do you see a way forward for us now? I mean, it's fascinating how we got here. Is it just too late? And for those that are listening, that you know, I'm thinking of a girl in our church that you know, just went off to Princeton with dreams of becoming a philosopher in the secular academy, who's a robust disciple of Jesus. I mean, I'm sure other people like that are listening to this. Do you have any advice or wisdom or vision for them? Keep at it. Uh, the thing is, um, to go now to the secular academy, which she's doing, and 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 people are needed to do that. The thing is, though, that to be in contact with the deep Christian tradition at that level, because I've known people who went to the academy with that dream and lost their faith. Right. Um, and so, because it's, it's potent and powerful and persuasive, and the whole world wants you to go that way. Right. <laughs> um, and so... You have to have something in your core, and you also need support, and you need intellectual support. Yes. Not just emotional. You need intellectual support. The thing is to put yourself in an intellectual community that can grapple with the ideas that you are grappling with in your coursework. Right. Um, and some of them may be people who have been dead a thousand years. Yes. Like you know, but he's a help. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Tom, Tom Oden, who I mentioned before, um, there's a book. There's a book, frankly, that I would give to this friend of yours, which is Tom's book called The Change of Heart. He talks about how he he at the age of 40 was a liberal um, Methodist um, professor. And he goes to teach at Drew University and a man named Will Herbert who had written the classic book about American religion in the 50s called Protestant Catholic Jew. Um, 
and was one of those reformed communists, you know, who got disgusted by Stalin's show trials in the 30s and renounced his Communist Party membership. He was an early neocon before there were neocons. Um, he was kind of his own person and very crotchety. So, and he was about 25 years older than Tom. So they had lunch and he's talking to Tom and he says, well, so you're a Christian theologian. And Tom, you know, yes, I'm a Christian theologian. And Will Herberg said, so have you read the church fathers? And Tom, I can just see him. He said, no, why would I need to read that? We don't need that old stuff, right? And Will Herberg said, it's fine. You don't have to read them. Nobody's making you. Certainly not me, but I don't have to talk to you either because you don't know anything. <laughs> ah! Tom, Tom, if you know him, well, read your old church fathers and then we'll see who doesn't know anything. So he starts reading the church fathers and 10 years later, he joins the Evangelical Theological Association. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he believes in the resurrection and he, wow. and he takes it on as his life work to give the fathers back to the church. And his dream was an ancient Christian commentary of which there are 29 volumes, which I have. Yes. And, and a bunch I have of them. And, and now when you go to the society for biblical literature at which prior to like 30 years ago, well, 25, if you went every three or four years, there might be one workshop on the on patristics, the fathers. Now there are three or four or five at every session, every wow. year. And it's because of Tom. So he wrote a theological and intellectual autobiography called A Change of Heart. Hmm. And it talks, he does talk, not as much as some of us wanted him to, about his struggles in the university, in the academy, after he became an Orthodox Christian. Yeah, um, but he he talks about how he went from being a total liberal um, to being an Orthodox Christian, hmm. and, and it's a wonderful story. So that's got to be a, yeah. No, thank you. It's got to be a compelling read. I'm sure there are people are listening right now that are on the fence or not even sure where that where to plot their own story right now on the landscape of the church but what a compelling story i mean it's been my experience too that discovering the ancients or the patristics or whatever you want to call them this rich tradition that dates back literally thousands of years i mean what it has done to enlarge my faith um, but also deepen my convictions and realize, man, culture, first off, history repeats itself. So a lot of the stuff that we think of as new is not yeah. actually that new. Yeah. And uh, and culture changes and even moral norms change and almost like sway back and forth with the wind. But we're rooted in this thing that is ancient and that is deep and that is wise and that is full of courage and truth and beauty. And so, I mean, I think that the ancients, like Augustine and many others, have just done so much to transform my faith. So let's let's go. And for those of you listening, I mean, who knows? This could be a moment for you. I'm just thinking how many people are listening right now. Actually, God, somewhere deep in the, the subterranean cavern of your soul, is actually calling you to step into yeah. the intellectual heights of our society, whatever that would look like for you. And maybe this is even a moment for some listening. But back to Augustine. You said some fascinating things almost in passing early on 
about um, the sexual assault of women, which was a part of the Visigoth sack of Rome. And I've read those chapters in City of God where Augustine is pastorally kind of um, pastoring women who've been through this traumatic experience through it via a kind of theological lens. One of the most intriguing things, and this is likely just because I'm of an age where I have lived through a dramatic 180 degree reversal in the moral consensus around sexuality and gender in my lifetime. Of course, for elites has been going on for hundreds of years, but at the popular level, I mean, it literally has happened in my age, in my lifetime. And it's dramatic and historic and almost a return to kind of pre-Christian sexuality with a few caveats. So talk to us about kind of the, the, the sexual vision of the Greco-Roman culture, the Roman empire. What was it like in the world before Christianity or the way of Jesus came in? And, and I'm just fascinated to think of how the moral consensus around sexuality and gender and marriage and many other things was overturned by, by the teachings of Jesus and lasted really until the 1960s at a popular level, it seems like. So yeah. talk to us about what, what was the sexual vision like in Greco-Roman culture before kind of the advent of the gospel of Jesus? Okay. I am, you're getting, you're getting the works of two people through me. One is a woman named Julia Sissa, who at least until 10 years ago and may still have a teaching position at the University of Rome and I believe at UCLA. Uh, she wrote a book called Sex and Sensuality in the Ancient World. It's mostly about the Greeks. It's a fascinating book. The other um, book, which deals directly with um, Rome and the advent of the Christian church, is Kyle Harper's book, From Shame to Sin. Yeah. Um, which I recommend. Oh, I got to hear you talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's, and Kyle Harper is a prince among men. He's a really wonderful person. Um, he, anyway, I've never met Julia Sissa, so I can't come, I can't comment on her personally, but Kyle Harper, I have. There's a Kyle Harper lecture on our website where he talks about the book From Shame to Sin. So you can hear the man himself instead of Roberta's channeling of Kyle Harper. Great. Um, but we'll, well, okay. we'll take right now, we'll take Roberta's okay. channeling okay. of Kyle Harper. So what Julius Sissa tells you is that in ancient Greece now, um, homosexuality was something that was popular among the elites. It was never on the, the lower class, average working stiff level. They didn't approve of it. They didn't do it. But to the elites of um, ancient Greek society, homosexuality was a higher love because it didn't produce children. So it was a love that could not be instrumentalized. Heterosexual love was production. Also, you were expected to go through a period of homosexuality, but not stay there. And so an old and it was an older man mentoring a, a beautiful well, you can, you know, the Greek statues, these beautiful young men, they're erotic. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. And, and so it was older men loving younger men. And in the transfer, in the sexual transfer of affection of that love, they were somehow mentoring these young men to grow up and be men who would marry women and have children. 
but this was the higher love. That was not the case on the average uh, plebeian level, and that is the ancient Greek word for it, the people below the elite. In the Roman world, um, the pattern was there was the paterfamilias and the materfamilias. And the materfamilias was supposed to produce the children. And the materfamilias was not supposed to have other lovers because obviously we want to know who the father is. Right. Um, which so is, there's a double standard between men and women where women were expected to exactly keep it with the husband, but husbands were expected to just spread it all over town with men, women, young boys. Yes. Lots of different things. Slaves. Kyle, Kyle Harper's new fact in all this, because Kyle Harper's seminal work was on slavery in ancient Rome and in the cities, as high as 20 percent of the population were slaves. And of course, slavery then was different from the chattel slavery that caused such deep horror in the Americas. And right. in Africa, too, it was horror, getting captured and thrown on a boat in chains. So anyway, but it was slavery was something either out of poverty or out of losing a war. And often slaves were highly educated people, um, but not not always, but often. And so. Um, so, but if you were the slave in a Roman household, you could, if the master wanted to sleep with you as his sexual object, if you will, there was not a darn thing you could do about it because you were his property. Yeah. So, and that was men and women. And also the, the plebeian level to use that, that's the Roman word. It's, I forget that I used the Roman word and said it was the Greek word. It isn't plebeian is a Roman word. I don't know what the Greek, I don't know the Greek as well. At any rate, um, sexual mores were much looser. Let's just put it that way. Um, people, you know, there was marriage, but it wasn't, people had a lot of partners. We'll just leave it at that. And if, if the bathhouses are anything to go by, the pictures <laughs> on the wall are very interesting. So in the houses, right. in, you know, in, in Pompeii, which are high end or major sexual images all over. So yes. You know, it was a looser culture. We'll just put it that way. But at the highest level, you had these women who'd better, you know, be chased or you could be out on your ear um, because we want to know whose children these are. And men who had complete and total freedom, whose, whose sexual partners, if you will, were often slaves. So yeah. along comes Christianity. Yeah. Tell us about this. Along comes Christianity and says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And along comes somebody like Chrysostom, who was the Bishop of Antioch, who got into no end of trouble by the time. In fact, he died on the way to exile because he had a the bad habit of saying things to the emperor and his wife about their lifestyle and they didn't like it. And eventually he was on his way to the black sea anyway. Um, but he was amazing. I mean, isn't it, doesn't his name translate as golden tongue, yep. right? I mean, he's just one of the best preachers in church history. He absolutely is. And if you read him, you know, it's him, but anyway, Christum actually preached more than once saying to prostitutes, you come to Jesus, it's history. You're washed in the blood of Jesus. You're totally whole. It's as if it never happened. And you start over. 
You're whole in Christ. It's washed away. And that's what Augustine said to those women. And this is in an honor, shame kind of culture where there's shame on these women, on these young men. They're carrying shame around in their body with no way to discharge that, no outlet for that shame. no And no no respectable man would have anything to do with a prostitute other than as a prostitute. So Chrysostom is bringing these women into proper culture, if you will. And, Mm. you know, because Jesus died in their hole. And their sin is no worse than yours while we're on the subject. And And then you have, you know, you have Paul and the New Testament writers who are holding husbands to the same standard as wives. So, so funny reading like that, what, what scholars call the household codes in Ephesians and a few other places in the New Testament. And we bristle at the, you know, husbands, you know, wives submit to your husbands or whatever, but we don't realize the original audience would have bristled a lot more, but on the other end, when it said that, you know, husbands, you are to love your wives as your own, treat them as you would your own body. Like, I mean, this, this was so far outside of the cultural norms of the day that a husband would be held to the same standard as a wife. And that chastity was the call between both of them. That, am I correct? That was basically almost unheard of. And that, that a husband would be called to anything. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, other than showing up and, yeah. you know, paying for the house. Fathering, fathering children. Fathering the appropriate number of children. Um, yeah. It's, well, and it also says my favorite part is and give your life for her. Yes. Huh. The Potter Familius in Rome was not receiving that with a lot of joy. I'll just right. you know, share that. Yeah, with you. So you can imagine while male, white, male Roman elites would would bristle at the gospel coming into pagan culture and see it as a threat. I mean, again, um, I just finished reading Tom Holland's book, Dominion, which was just a staggering work of genius. But he basically, here is, this is a secular agnostic historian. And he's basically saying that most of the best things in Western culture that we take for granted did not exist prior to the introduction of the gospel of Jesus, such as our moral assumption that it is wrong for the strong to oppress the weak, that literally it was the opposite in the ancient world, that if you were the strong, that oppressing the weak that was a sign of how strong you were like good on you and so the gospel's introduction to roman culture for roman elites in particular male elites in power i mean it literally undermined the very foundation of roman society at some level yeah and there's a quote you find it fast enough i've got it here we go um this is this is about basil and basil the great was the bishop of what is now Konya, Turkey. He established the first, what is considered to be the first hospital, yep. hospital in the West. Yep. And um, he, he in, in it, there were as many wards as there were diseases, and they even took in lepers, which nobody did. Lepers were yes. all thrown out, but Basil had a leprosy section. And, um, and then they had, they had quarters for the medical staff, workshops, hospices for travelers and the poor, and they set up an industrial school to teach these people trades so they can make a living. And then, and then, they, then they built a network of hospitals, of course. Yes. Um, and then when he died, 
Gregory of Nazianza said this about him at his funeral. Others have had their cooks and splendid table, which I'm not totally opposed to splendid tables, but, (laughs) and the devices and dainties of confectioners. He's talking about these bishops that never left and just had big parties all the time and exquisite carriages and soft flowing robes. Basil's care was for the sick and the relief of their wounds and the imitation of Christ by cleansing mm-hmm. leprosy, not by word, but in deed. Wow. And then this is a quote by a historian about what the Christians of that era did. The Christians deliberately, and it's what you were just talking about, replaced a civic model of society with a universal citizenship. What Augustine was talking about, about a people of all languages, all nations. It was a prelude to that of heaven, which is the theme of my book about the importance of understanding your citizenship as being here on earth and in the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is the template for what we're supposed to be trying to do here. Um, Anyway, in which the poor emerged from the conceptual shadows. I mean, the poor, you know, um, to symbolize the church's embrace of society as a whole. The bishop, quote, as lover of the poor, was a stronger image than that of the notable, the Roman, you know, noble putting up, who was the nourisher of the citizen body, meaning he built arenas or he built temples, statues, fixed up the agora, you know, stuff like that. In both its emotional charge and its social ramifications, the Christian shattered the ancient civic model. Wow. The potential of transformation of a society when Christians take their role seriously as a town that's built on a hill, you know, is just staggering. I think one of the main takeaways from this conversation. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And thank you for listening. Even though I am gone and away for sabbatical for a number of months, this podcast is still here and online. If it was at all helpful, please tell your family and friends about it. Give us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And just a reminder that my book, by the same name, Live No Lies, that sparked this podcast is available now wherever books are sold. Well, that's it. That's a wrap. Thank you again for listening. So much love to all of you. Can't wait to return to the digital world next fall. In the meantime, peace to all of you.